0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it looks like Brexit is coming to a close, but if that's what you're thinking, eh, not so fast. There's still a long way to go and a lot of negotiating to do. We'll tell you about that in just a couple of minutes. Also, a new report from Zucassa looking at 2019 home values compared to income. Hamilton's looking pretty good. And a key Senate vote today as to whether or not witnesses are going to be allowed in this impeachment hearing that we've been watching. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today, on The Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. Brexit is done. Well, sort of done. Uh, the, the EU uh, finally ratified the deal, and uh, Brexit is over with. Uh, but there's still a long way to go in this. Anybody who uh, thinks that, uh, that well, now that the European Union has given the, the the divorce, as it were, uh, their blessing uh, and think that, that all said and done is, is sadly mistaken. There's still a long way to go in this whole process uh, Joining us to talk about this is Redmond Shannon. Redmond of course is uh, Global News in London uh, First of all uh, thanks so much for joining us Redmond, great to have you back on the show today. You're welcome good to be here. If, if we can use that metaphor of, of the, the, the divorce uh, the divorce has been granted but uh, the, the two sides are still living under the same roof for the next little while aren't they?
1: Exactly. It'll it'll at least be eleven months before they decide who gets the kids and uh, <laughs> who gets them at weekends and who gets uh, whose money. Um, that is So this is a day about symbolism, really. This is uh, the uh, day when the papers are signed and they, everyone walks out of court. And that is at 11 p.m. local time here. That's uh, 6 Eastern. The um, Big Ben will not chime because it's being refurbished. But I'm looking at Big Ben right now in a noisy Parliament Square opposite the House of Commons with people gathering and uh, news helicopters above. And this is where a lot of people will gather at 11 p.m. to celebrate. Uh, The people who are supporting Brexit, of course, will celebrate the UK's departure. A lot of people will be less than happy about it. But uh, yes, this is far from the end. To quote Winston Churchill, whose statue is right here opposite me, uh, this is uh, just the uh, end of the beginning, and it's not the beginning of
0: the end. And and it is a rather acrimonious split, and we can get into that in a couple of minutes. what, what, What is the mood on the street right now?
1: Well, the mood here among most people is celebratory because these are the people who are supporting Brexit who are gathering to celebrate it. Um, Still a bit of anger. There's still a sort of an air of nastiness about this, even though people are not uh, necessarily arguing with each other. I saw a man arguing with two policemen earlier about Brexit and the policemen (laughs) were trying to keep their mouths shut, just go, yes, sir, Uh, keep going, sir. It was quite a remarkable uh, interaction but there's a lot of deep anger among the, the ardent pro-Brexiteers, and that is a small sliver of society, as as with anything. People who gather on a weekday, perhaps, and go with flags to celebrate something like this, um, those are people at the extremes. A lot, of, But about half the country is happy to see this happen, and the other half are less happy, and you have people on extremes, too. So the mood uh, is still,
0: still very much divided. It's only taken three and a half years, and and they've gone through three prime ministers over there in this whole process. I mean, there, there was a price to pay here, wasn't there? Oh,
1: hugely. And, you know, these prime ministers who, uh, Theresa May and David Cameron, who stood down over the European Union and the, the fight about that are not the first. I mean, ultimately, Margaret Margaret Thatcher's demise could be put down to that. And other prime ministers uh, throughout the last 47 years of Britain's uh, membership of the EU have faced huge tensions within their parties and within the House of Commons about how the UK interacted with Europe. And this is just ongoing and it's not going to end here because this future relationship has to be decided and how closely the UK sticks to Europe uh, is going to be up for debate. And there are divisions uh, again about that and they're going to come out over the next year and it's just going to be more of the same and it's sort of uh, framed slightly differently.
0: And, And you mentioned 11 months and I know that's the agreed upon time frame to try to iron out all these other things, but I'm hearing Redmond. That uh, that it may take longer, and I know that's not the sort of thing Boris Johnson wants. He was, I remember, once said that he'd rather be found dead in a ditch than delaying Brexit anymore. But uh, 11 months may not be enough time to hammer all the stuff out.
1: Yeah, that's unsurprising because this is uh, potentially 11 months to strike a free trade deal with the EU from the UK side. It it took Canada seven years to strike a free trade deal with the EU. Now, of course, Britain is fully aligned with the EU as we speak. They're still a member for the next few hours. So all the regulations mirror each other and, and will do so throughout this transition period. But if the UK wants to go out and do deals with the US and other countries and potentially Canada too, it's going to have to diverge, particularly if it's going to strike a deal with the US, a free trade agreement. And the more it diverges or wants to diverge from the EU, the longer it's going to take to strike a free trade deal because it becomes much, much more complicated. So, this year, this decision is going to have to be made about how is the UK going to lean? Lean toward, uh, lean west across the Atlantic or lean back east somewhat and stay close to the EU, which is on its doorstep and a huge market as well. And that is going to come out and the tensions are going to be clear over the coming months as
0: that decision has
1: to be made quite quickly.
0: Redmond, what's going to happen in Ireland? I mean, that was one of the more contentious issues in this whole debate and it hasn't been resolved yet it hasn't
1: completely been resolved but part of this uh, divorce deal that boris johnson passed through parliament did resolve part of it insofar as the final agreement uh, will allow for some customs checks to be in place within the UK. So that is between the island of Britain, mainland Britain, and Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK. So some goods travelling from Britain to Northern Ireland will be subject to customs checks after this deal. And that is hugely contentious among pro-British unionists in Northern Ireland who see this as a something that loosens their links to the United Kingdom and and that was the deal that was done in order to keep the border open between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland which is of course staying in the EU and that's seen as vital to the peace process but whether or not these customs checks could uh, ignite tensions on the pro-British side of the divide in Northern Ireland well that remains to be seen and it's just how prevalent and how stringent those checks will be Boris Johnson is still saying that those checks won't happen but it's in the deal all experts say that's exactly what's in the deal and it's a lot of politics and um you know wording and how people are wording things is is uh is how it's being played right now but the reality when the rubber hits the road is is going to be seen over the coming months and years
0: and and that's maybe one of the unintended consequences of this whole situation i mean those of us that uh, still have very you know vivid memories of the tension between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland, uh, the Republic of course, uh, that seemed to be settled of course with the what, the so-called Good Friday Agreement a few years ago and, and that border was really inconsequential but it, I, I guess what the concern here now is what's this going to do to the mindset of the, of the people what's the, if they do start these checks uh, from a, both an economic standpoint and of course uh, there's a concern that this is going to just rekindle some of those, those uh, acrimonious feelings between the two sides.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it ultimately, it came down to what Boris Johnson could sell. And it, it wasn't that different to what Theresa May was trying to sell to MPs. But he sold it uh, better, shall we say. He, he's a better salesman, obviously more gregarious and able to do it. And it sort of came down to uh, selling it to British con- uh, Conservative MPs from England and whether they wanted Brexit more or did, do they want to keep the United Kingdom 100% as it was. And they had to decide between the two. And ultimately, Brexit was chosen. And there is going to be a slight divide within the United Kingdom now, regulatory between Northern Ireland, which is going to stay aligned with the EU in many ways, and the rest of the United Kingdom, which is going to diverge. And whether or not that means the demise of the United Kingdom as we know it in the coming years or decades, well, time will tell and Scotland is obviously up for grabs too.
0: Yeah, I know Prime Minister Sturgeon has already talked about another referendum. Now, Parliament's not going to give them that, but there's it, going to be some ill will there, isn't there?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, the, you know, the Scottish government is a Scottish nationalist party there and, you know, it's very similar dynamic to the Bloc uh, or the Parti Québécois when it was in power in Canada and you have that tension um, from between Scotland and between the uh, between Lon- London and, and Scotland. And London is not gonna grant that um, for now, but it becomes, it sometimes comes to a point as to it becomes very difficult to say no because then you breed resentment towards London if you continue to say no. But the issue that Scottish nationalists are now seeing is that once the UK diverges from the EU, if Scotland goes independent and wants to go back into the EU, then inevitably you will have a border between england and scotland mm-hmm. which of course makes the argument for scottish independence much more difficult to sell to scottish people you people up there won't want any border between england and scotland and, and, and that's unimaginable in in the modern uh setup of things but that's something that scottish nationalists are really going to have to grapple with over the coming years too
0: pivotal day today and uh, we'll see how it plays out and we'll be watching for your reporting on global national later on redmond thanks so much for the time today Thanks, have a great day. You Bye. too. Redmond Shannon, of course, uh, Global News in London, England, uh, right by Parliament Square there at the end of uh, Whitehall and by the Parliament buildings. A great place to uh, exchange opinions, as people have done from time to time. So what about the deal, and what about the negotiations still to come? Uh, to get into that and the implications that may come, we're pleased to welcome to the program Armand Domestrol, who is a Professor Emeritus at the Jean Monnet Chair in Law of International Economic Integration. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. It was a pleasure. Uh, with the, the signing of the deal and the EU uh, ratifying uh, the, the Brexit deal, uh, they've given themselves an 11-month window here to try to hammer out the rest of this and for, I guess, both sides to decide exactly how this is going to work out from an economic standpoint. Uh, I guess the obvious question is, is that enough time to be able to, to do all that?
2: Most uh, experts uh, say no and suggest that perhaps all that can be done would be to block out the basic principles and hopefully implement those principles and then work out more details in future years. But I guess the answer is uh, 11 months is very, very short. In fact, it's 10 months.
0: What? How do you approach something like this? I mean, if you look at this, we were using the analogy earlier of, of a divorce, which I think is probably very accurate here. Uh, and if if you want to use that metaphor, uh, the EU gets to keep the house. I mean, it's, it's the UK that seems to be the one that's going to have to go out on their own here and try to cut their own deal. How difficult is that going to be?
2: Well, I think it is going to be difficult. Uh, the EU, if Britain wants access uh, to EU markets for both its goods and its services, and currently uh, more than 45% of uh, UK goods are exchanged with the EU and uh, the service market, particularly financial services, uh, wants desperately to remain a key player in the EU market. So if Britain wants to maintain basically the advantages it now has, it's going to have to uh, remain very much in sync with uh, EU rules. On the other hand, Prime Minister uh, Johnson has said, no, we're taking back our sovereignty, uh, and uh, we're going to be free to make whatever rules we want in the UK. Now, he he can't have it both ways. He can't have it both ways. And so we're going to see what actually he agrees to do. Uh, He's shown himself to be rather more flexible, Uh, Indeed, some people say he has no principles at all, uh, but he's more flexible probably than he uh, admits. Um, But if he wants to maintain the links with EU trade in goods and services, uh, he'll have to stick pretty closely to the rules that the EU sets.
0: And therein lies the problem, I would think. I mean, you know, when they went through this in the referendum three and a half years ago, Professor, as we all know, uh, Angela Merkel and, and uh, President Macron and, uh, and others in the EU uh, were pretty harsh about this and said, look, we've got, we got to send a message here that we don't want other people bailing out on this settlement, too. So I can't see that they're going to openly say, OK, you can keep your sovereignty, but you get the same deal that you had before. They're going to have to play hardball with the with the UK, aren't they?
2: Well, I think they will. I think they will. And it's going to be made difficult because the uh, EU departure legislation adopted last week says that the uh, 11 month extension or phase in period uh, can't be extended. Now, maybe they'll change that to give themselves more time, but they have to do that by, I think, month of June. And. Yes, it's going to be a very difficult negotiation, and particularly, as they say, they want to have a parallel negotiation with the United States, where you've had uh, Secretary Pompeo just yesterday say uh, there'll be a price to pay for a good U.K.-U.S. deal, and he said in particular uh, the U.K. can't hide behind uh, uh, ideas of uh, ecology uh, to... uh, Maintain certain kinds of uh, rules on treatment of uh, animals and treatment of uh, of uh, products sold in British uh, supermarkets.
0: Well, and we saw that happen with the negotiations with the uh, Canadian and and American governments, of course, with the new NAFTA deal. Uh, You know what? the president at one point uh, described as tweaking uh, the existing deal turned out to be some pretty serious negotiations that uh, tended to fall apart from time to time. This is this is going to be pretty tough on the UK.
2: I think it will be very tough, and uh, one of their problems is that they don't have a cadre of uh, experienced trade negotiators, either to deal with the uh, EU or to deal with the UK or, or others. for Canada, for instance, supposedly we've There has been a deal between Canada and the UK in the making, uh, quietly, uh, over the last couple of years. But curiously, we've heard nothing about it. And you begin to wonder whether the EU has reminded uh, Canada that uh, there's a lot more trade between the EU and Canada than there is between the UK and Canada.
0: It's going to be a very difficult time for them. We'll follow this story with great interest over the next little while. Professor, thank you uh, for the time, and thank you for your input into this. It's a pleasure. Great talking with you today. That's uh, Professor Armand de Mastrol, of course, uh, with his take on what's going to be happening with the U.K. And uh, well, as they say in the biz, more to come on this one in uh, the next uh, 10 or 11 months anyway and see how uh, Prime Minister Johnson tries to work his magic on this side of the deal. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We talk a lot about real estate, especially here in the Hamilton market, because there's so much going on. And a, a new study that has just been released from Zucasa uh, has compared 2019 home sales to uh, uh, the year before, which was a bit of a dip, we were told, and, uh, and, and especially in Hamilton neighborhoods. And there's some pretty encouraging news that's involved in this. Uh, to uh, fill us in on what's going on, we're pleased to welcome Penelope Graham from uh, Zucasa to the Bill Keller Show here on 900 CHML. Penelope, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us today.
3: Hi, good morning.
0: We've always known, I guess, anecdotally over the last few years, that there seems to be a move towards Hamilton, I guess, especially from the GTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, these numbers are pretty encouraging for anybody that's looking at listing or maybe even trying to buy a house here in this area.
3: Yeah, that's correct. So this year's definitely going to be more advantageous for those who are selling their homes. Um, but we are going to see pressure ramping up for those who are trying to buy. Um, so what we're seeing unfold in Hamilton right now, the very classic supply and demand gap that's forming And this is very much in line with the rest of the Greater Golden Horseshoe, as well as the GTA markets. Um, So what we saw in Hamilton in 2019 was that home sales rose by 10%, uh, but new listings actually dropped by minus 4%. Um, so due to that, the overall real estate conditions in the city as a whole can actually be classified as a buyer's, or sorry, a seller's market. Um, so when we have a seller's market, that's going to lead to an increase in things such as bidding wars for the properties that are available. Um, you might see buyers who are willing to drop more of their conditions like financing and inspection to sweeten deals. Um, and of course, when seller's market conditions stick around... That puts upward pressure on prices. Um, so as I said, you know, it's a it's a good news story if you're looking to offload your property this year. But it might be a, a trickier time for buyers to break into the market.
0: Penelope, are we ever going to get back to those crazy days from a couple of years ago when you know the market just went off the map and, uh, and like you say, there were people you know lined up down the street to put an offer in on, on a house
3: hmm. So, you know, th- that market peak that we saw in, in 2016 and 2017, where we saw some unsustainable price growth that, of course, prompted some new policies from um, the, the former liberal Ontario government. Yeah. They, they put in that fair housing plan. Um, what we did see as a result of that, and this led to a chillier 2018, was that kind of psychologically cooled market. Um, you know, people aren't really willing to, to list or buy when they think that the market's in Uh So we did see a little bit of a, a chillier 2018. Um, of course, as well, there was that federal mortgage stress test that was introduced. Yeah,
0: I know, I know a lot of realtors I talked to were pretty upset by that and thinking it was going to mm-hmm. have an impact. I guess it did.
3: Yeah, it's a it's a fairly controversial me- measure, um, because on one hand, you've got the Department of Finance saying, well, this is a stopgap to prevent risky borrowing. We don't want people biting off more they can chew. We want to encourage responsible borrowing. But on the other hand, it did knock a lot of buyers out of the market, because what it essentially does is it makes you, uh, if you're applying for a brand new mortgage, you have to prove that you could afford one that's 2% higher than what your bank is actually going to give you. Um However, towards the end of, the uh, you know, second half of 2019, we started seeing a lot of these buyers come back to the market, um, and that's because we had, you know, historically low interest rates, low mortgage rates last year, and that certainly, you know, helped speeden their budgets a little bit, um, but they also went back to the savings drawing board in a lot of cases, so they're coming back armed with larger down payments, they're ready to make a second play into the market. Um, but, you know, there's there's also um, a large increase in population that's coming to southern Ontario. Uh, and Hamilton is certainly a focal point of this. Um, you know, so you've got a lot of immigration and migration, uh, there's really strong business centres in, in southern Ontario. Um, and then, of course, there's what we call the spillover effect from the city of Toronto itself. Uh, so as we know, there's a lot of people who are priced out of that urban centre. They're looking for commutable cities and towns where real estate is comparably cheaper. And Hamilton, for a lot of those buyers, kind of proving to be in that sweet spot. Um, you know, it's still a, a very large urban center. Um, there's a lot of amenities in Hamilton that appeal to millennials and first-time buyers. So you've got a strong art scene, strong dining scene. Um, a lot of the neighborhoods are really walkable. Uh, there's also great access to nature, and that's very appealing to a lot of buyers. Um, so that's, you know, a combination of all of these factors is what's driving increased demand in the city.
0: And we'll get, I'll do a breakdown on that in just a couple of minutes about which parts mm-hmm. of the city are actually benefiting most from that. But mm-hmm. uh, the concern we had, uh, you know, when the, the the mortgage stress test came in and it did not cause a lot of stress to anybody that wanted to buy a house, mm-hmm. uh, was that it was going to have the impact. And as you say, the stats seem to bear that out. But they came back a year later. The the the, the parameters were still there, Penelope. Mm-hmm. If these were the same people that took a pass on it in 2018, where'd they get their money in 2019? I, was it the bank of mom and dad? Because the banks were being pretty stiff with a lot of these people.
3: Well, it's a combination of things. Uh, The bank of mom and dad is certainly, um, you know, an increasing presence that we're seeing in the market. Uh, So these cash infusions for buyers who are, are lucky enough to get family gifts, um, that's certainly going to give them a boost with their down payments. Um, but as I mentioned, interest rates were extremely low last year. They were lower than they were in 2018. Uh, we saw the Bank of Canada keep its rate on hold all year long. Um, that really allowed for lenders to be very stable with their rates, both variable and fixed mortgage rates. And so that gave you know buyers who might have been priced out in 2018 a little bit of a step up. So even though they're still stress tested, being stress tested at an overall lower rate which certainly helped in some circumstances.
0: Right, let's do a bit of a breakdown if we could about uh, some of the neighborhoods here um, mm-hmm. and, and I was surprised uh, at, at this uh, I, I mean I live in Encaster. all of us know that I've been mm-hmm. up there for about 15 years now and we just love the neighborhood but mm-hmm. apparently one of the hottest neighborhoods right now when it comes to, to buying new houses is at the east end of the city.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the neighborhood where we saw that home price gains were the strongest in comparison to incomes was actually the area that encompasses Kentley, Lakeley, Grayside, etc. So there we actually saw home price gains last year exceed incomes by 142%. And these are both for median income buyers and and median homes. So very much the the middle part of the market, middle class buyers, those who are in the top 50% threshold of, of all earnings. So there you're looking at a median home price this year of just over uh, $472,000. That's 81K higher than it was in 2018. Uh, Meanwhile, the median income there is just over 56K. Um, And there's a few reasons why it's been really popular. Uh, There's some very established retail and business uh, centers there. It's got, you know, good walkability. You're close to the lake, but you're also close to the highway. So, if you're a buyer who's coming in from Toronto or you know perhaps another community and you want something that's within commutable distance, this is a really attractive neighborhood option. Um, so, we think that that might be you know one of the factors that's driving demand there. Um, some of the other neighborhoods that we saw you know in the top three where home gains um, almost were entirely relative to to incomes uh, was a neighborhood with Delta, Gage Park, Saint Clair. So there, um, the home price gains that we saw last year are 93% of incomes. Um, so prices are up just over 37 k You're looking at a median home price of just over $476,000. Um, also, Cram Point and Gibson, we saw a very similar trend play out. Uh, the gains there are about 89% of incomes. And you know what all of these communities have in common is you've got a median home price that's below that 500K mark. Um, so it's comparably quite affordable with some of the other urban centers that are surrounding Hamilton. So if you're a buyer coming to the city, you're going to be able to find something that's comparably quite affordable. It's going to be really attractive. Um, but also for people who are originating within the city, buyers who are looking for an affordable entry point into the market, they might be finding it in these neighborhoods, and that's certainly going to fuel demand.
0: Interestingly enough, though, you, t- you talked about some of the assets that, uh, that our city has here mm-hmm. uh, that are attractive to people. And, well, you know, the art scene, of course, and, and that includes music, by the way, of course. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've got the art crawls and, and some of the other entertainment amenities and uh, a great restaurant scene, of course. And a lot of that is on King William Street and James Street North, which is in the mm-hmm. downtown core. Uh, and people seem to want to move close by where those amenities are.
3: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. You know, and certainly with that first time homebuyer segment, the millennial segment, um, you know, we know that these home buyers really value walkability in their neighborhoods. They value very vibrant social scenes. They want to be able to have the amenities that a a big city would offer. Um, So Hamilton does have some neighborhoods where, you know, it's really attractive that they they are able to offer those amenities and they're going to be a draw for those reasons.
0: What about uh, public transit? Is that a concern for people when they start looking at a market like this?
3: So for people who are moving into the Hamilton market from from elsewhere, they're likely looking to commute back out to Toronto. So they might not be as concerned with public transit. However, it's, you know, as we've seen anecdotally, really in any city, um, proximity to public transit is really important for home prices because Mm. you need things to be accessible. Um, People are always going to be looking for easy ways to get around the city. So in general, uh, you know, proximity to public transit is an important factor for home prices.
0: I mean, we certainly see that in Toronto. I mean, you know, just about every stop on the subway line, especially the Bloor subway line, you'll get these little nodes here of condos and apartment buildings and everything because mm-hmm. people just want to walk downstairs and get onto the train. Uh, mm-hmm. And clearly, I guess the same thing is going to happen here. We don't have all-day ghost service yet, although it's mm-hmm. been promised. But uh, you'd like to think that there's going to be these little concla- enclaves uh, around the ghost stations as well.
3: And developers are certainly aware of that. Um, you know, uh, the developers who are planning new communities Um, Proximity to transit is a very high priority for them, so they're really going to be looking to increase density along those transit corridors, and those who are already in established neighbourhoods around those transit corridors will likely see a little bit of a boost uh, just because of the increased demand there.
0: What about when something like this happens, and 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 the market sees that there's some action here in the Hamilton area? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there is there a concern here about speculators being you know, people that are going to buy just because they want to get in on this and look for a, an opportunity to make some money, or are these legitimate buyers that want to actually live in the in the accommodations in the houses?
3: It's hard to say really what the makeup of buyers are. Um, we do know anecdotally from the agents who who work with Sukasa that. Hamilton continues to be really attractive for for end users, for people who want to dwell in the city. Um, For them, what they're really looking for is that comparable affordability. Um, But of course, when you are you have a hot market situation, there's always concern that there's going to be speculative forces at play Um, if something is uh, offering great value to break in at the ground level, um, and you think that you're going to see great increases over time, that could certainly be a draw for investors. Um, But I think at at this point in time, a lot of um, the home price increases that we're seeing are as a result of the end users who are actually dwelling in their home.
0: This looks like a pretty good news story, and that's, that's gratifying to see, especially mm-hmm. for people in the industry or people who just want to move to the city. I mean, there's a lot of good things going on here.
1: Mm-hmm. But it,
0: it, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, though, about the fact that, yeah, in some of these neighborhoods, prices are going well and the prices are actually increasing but there are not a lot of uh, houses on the market right now. Um mm-hmm. is 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 that a concern? I mean, obviously that drives prices up and it's, it's great I guess if you want to sell because you know that there's going to be a willing a list of people I'm sure that want to look at your house and possibly you know make offers on a situation like this. But mm-hmm. housing stock is is always going to be a concern. Is is what what do we need to do to to, to try to even the playing field here for both buyers and sellers?
3: Mhm. And you're correct. Housing supply is always a main concern both for um you know policy at all levels of government it's a key issue we know for the federal government the provincial government uh, also for municipal governments um, you really want to make sure that there's enough supply to suit demand so you're not getting that unsustainable price growth um, and it really comes down to you know good building policy are we building the kind of supply in these markets that are going to be accessible for the majority of buyers because um, you know one thing that we're seeing just to take it to the city of Toronto to you know, anecdotally, we see a lot of development happening for condos, but they're smaller units. They're still the higher end uh, priced end of the market. They're not necessarily suited for growing families, um, or you know that bulk of the market that has the greatest need. So it's it's really important that we see that kind of development. That's really going to be um, you know key for that that bulk of home buyers who um, who are making up the majority of demand. Uh, and, and you know, when we see a supply and demand gap growing, like I said good news for sellers, but it will continue to put pressure on buyers. And it's not something that you want to see unsustainably increase over time, because that's when you start to get the kind of conditions we saw in 2016 and 2017, uh, where price growth was really rampant. And, um, you know, it became a little bit too hot to handle and the government felt they had to step in
0: that was insane <laughs> mm-hmm. uh we were i i know we had family members that were involved they're trying to you know buy a house and uh i mean you know there were people who were taking sealed offers there were there were auctions there was bidding going on it was mm-hmm. just insanity but uh it, it seems to have cooled off obviously a little bit but i i guess the the lack of stock to a certain extent though Penelope puts pressure on to a certain extent on realtors i mean probably mm-hmm. two or three times a week Uh, I get something in the mail or stuck in my front door there. Hey, you know, uh, thinking of selling. Uh, I guess they have to go and cultivate some of this stuff sometimes and, and try to move the market along to try to find product to sell in some cases.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having a lack of supply is going to put pressure on anybody who is involved in the real estate industry. Um, so certainly realtors are going to be keeping an eye out for available stock for their clients, um, especially in some of these most desirable neighborhoods. Uh, you know, people who are, are in the neighborhoods that I mentioned where you're seeing the, the greatest price increases, they're likely getting brochures in their mailboxes on a daily basis mm-hmm. seeing if, you know, perhaps they're they're interested in selling. Um, so it, it impacts every level of the industry, certainly.
0: There's There's a lot of new development going on in Hamilton, especially in the south end uh, of uh, of this city. But the, the housing areas that seem to have uh, the most success here and those price increases are all mature neighborhoods. That's interesting.
3: Mm-hmm. And I think a large part of that, too, is, as, as I mentioned, there are established business centers and already good walkability. Um, because sometimes when you're in some of these brand-new neighborhoods, the amenities have yet to catch up. They might not have schools built yet. Um, you know, They might not have a lot of the community centers built up yet. So if you're a buyer, especially from outside of the city who might have a larger budget, you're looking to get into a neighborhood where you can be comfortable right away uh, rather than getting into something that's perhaps brand spanking new and you have to wait a couple of years for all the amenities to catch up.
0: What's this going to do to to other markets? Is there a spillover? We talked about the spillover effect from the GTA into Hamilton mm-hmm. right now. As this market starts to to heat up, and it seems as if the numbers indicate that that's already happening, mm-hmm. uh, what about some of the outlying areas, the Grimsby's and, and uh, the, mm-hmm. the Binbrooks and places like that? Are they going to see the effects of this as well?
3: It's entirely possible. And, um, you know, the spillover effect that I had mentioned, uh, the Canadian Real Estate Association has actually recorded that it goes as far as Niagara region. Okay. So in Niagara, you're seeing home prices increase as a direct result of buyers who are displaced from the city of Toronto. So, yes, we are going to see, you know, kind of a a ladder effect. As long as um, those sellers' conditions persist in in the largest urban centers, you're going to see that spill over into the smaller communities, certainly.
0: Excellent stuff. Uh, For people that are are interested in this, and there may be more than a few of them that Mm -hmm. are listening to our conversation that says, you know what, this sounds like a pretty good time to put a for sale sign on the lawn. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where can they get a copy of your report?
3: So it is on our website. Um, if you go to Zucasa.com and click on blog, you'll be able to find it there. Um, we've got a whole table here where we break down 27 neighborhoods across Hamilton. Uh, so they'll be able to check out um, you know, how home values have increased uh, in relative to incomes in their local neighborhood or perhaps the neighborhood that they're interested in.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Penelope, thank you so much, for, uh, for A, for the report, and B, for your time today. It's a lot of fun talking with you today.
3: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Take care. Penelope Graham, of course, from uh, Zucasa. And uh, as I say, if you're thinking about an agent, we talk about real estate a lot on this program. This sounds like a pretty good time here in the Hamilton area to sell anyway. It might be a little more difficult to find product if you're looking to, to move in here. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, this is a big day in Washington. Of course, we know the impeachment trial has been going on for some time now. Uh, Still no witnesses, still no documentation or evidence is being allowed in. But uh, this is a big day because there are, well, a vote that is probably going to happen today that could determine... Uh, exactly what's going to happen, although I think we all know what the eventual outcome of this is going to be. But as a matter of fact, it may even shut down today if uh, certain things happen and certain votes are taking place. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Brian J. Karam, executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers, uh, political analyst on CNN, and a White House reporter for Playboy. Brian, thank you for the time. Glad you could join us today. Glad to be here. Uh, I guess the big question everybody's asking is, uh, does Mitch McConnell have the votes to kill this thing today?
4: (laughs) That is the big question, and there are a lot of people playing it close to their vest. Um, increasingly, it looks like the pressure to uh, call witnesses is having an effect, but also it looks like it's uh, that effect may be to have no witnesses. Um, it depends on... Uh, I mean, there is overwhelming majority of people polled want to see witnesses who ever heard of a trial without witnesses. But um, the Republicans have really... Uh, kind of uh, circled their wagons, and we'll see. I don't think anyone has an accurate uh, count of the votes other than Mitch McConnell, and uh, he has played it very close to his vest.
0: Earlier this week, it looked as if he was going to lose this battle. It looked like there was going to be uh, uh, some folks fall off. I mean, Romney is one of them. Obviously, he's been pretty outspoken about this. But when push comes to shove and they actually have to vote on it, it seems as if they've, they've kind of gone back into the fold.
4: Well, you need 51 votes. Right. To, to do it. They have a fifty three forty seven majority so they could lose Romney and one other and they'd be OK. Hell, they could lose three or four and gain three or four Democrats and be OK. So McConnell's not only counting Republicans, he's counting Democrats. And we'll find out. I mean, it's really going to boil down to um, do you value your it's it's not even party over country. It's your own job over country is what it boils down to, and some of these people are voting because they think they'll keep their job in doing so.
0: Uh, How much of it is a fear factor here, fearing about repercussions from Trump and the Trump team if in fact they go against him?
4: Well, I think that plays a large part in this. Uh, You know, the comment, heads on a pike, uh, has been issued. So Yeah, there are people scared that there'll be retribution from the president because they know of his foul nature and they don't really wish to uh, go up against it. I find that disheartening because, uh, you know, the country I was raised in, it was vote your conscience, not your party or your uh, despot leader's policy. So that's kind of disheartening. But we'll see where it goes at the end of the day. There's still, you know. Uh, they come into session at 1 o'clock Eastern, and there'll be questions and debates, and we'll see what
0: happens. Let's face it, when we talk about whether or not they're going to allow witnesses, I mean, it, this is really about John Bolton, isn't it?
4: Well, it's about John Bolton. It's about Mick Mulvaney. It's about all the people that the president has said he doesn't want to have testify. It, it might be about Lindsey Graham. It, the Republicans want to make it about uh, Hunter Biden. Um There's a whole lot on the table if you allow witnesses, which is why the Republicans don't want it. It'll prolong the um, it's going to prolong the inevitable. I don't think they'll ever get 67 votes to get Trump out. But the longer this goes on, the more it damages his presidency. And the closer it runs up to uh, the state of the union, the more uh, uh, tension will build.
0: And that seems to be an arbitrary deadline that McConnell and Lindsey Graham have both talked about, that they they want to see this wrapped up because they don't want to see it crashing against the State of the Union. But that's that's really all about public perception, though, isn't it? When It's not about justice.
4: Well, no, none of this is about justice. It's all about the public perception. I mean, you had Lindsey Graham, you've had Ted Cruz, you've had uh, <laughs> Mitch McConnell come out and say they've, they've uh, abandoned their role of as, as independent jurists, and they're, they've sided with the president. So... What exactly do you expect to see but a show trial?
0: One of the more uh, interesting, if not disturbing things, of course, was uh, the, the defense put up by the Trump team, especially Alan Dershowitz earlier this week. Uh, and it's, it's, it's fascinating, Brian, to see the evolution of their argument. It started out months and months ago, no, he didn't do this, and then it was, okay, he didn't do it, but it's you know, he, it's not the way you said it was. Dershowitz essentially was saying he can do whatever he wants. He's the president, if he, and, he, and, and he, he says if he's going to put his interest ahead of that, so what?
4: Well, you know, you, that's really not a surprise, because I sat in the White House briefing room when Mick Mulvaney said, this is the way it's done all the time, get over it. Yeah, That has been the fallback position since Mulvaney came forward and said that. And so all their other defenses have, have failed. This is their fallback position, which is, uh, we, we can do what we want to hell with you. And that's a frightening position to be in.
0: There was a, an interesting uh, parallel going on yesterday, Brian, that, that was being reported all over the place. I guess this is not the only uh, legal action that's going on in Washington right now. I guess in in another courtroom someplace else, uh, they were arguing whether or not documents that uh, the Congress had asked for should be released. And uh, when the judge said, well, you know, if you don't get them, what are you going to do? It was the Trump lawyers that said, well, you have to impeach them then. Uh, and this is going on out of, out of one set of lawyers, while these guys on the other side, over in in, in the Senate, are basically saying, you know, you can't impeach him for doing this. So, there's a uh, to, su- to suggest there's an incongruity there. I think it'd be a massive understatement.
4: Well, to suggest that this administration can operate without being in court <laughs> is an understatement. I'm still in court with them. We we go back to court. They tried to yank my press pass, and we go back in March 23rd, and I never thought I'd be you know, in court in a styling on a case that said Brian Karam versus Donald Trump. But here we are. He has uh, if he can't get what he wants, he goes to court and he knows he may not win in court, but he knows that he can slow the process down. And so the Democrats tried to actually subvert that or short circuit that uh, by not pursuing in court the subpoenas that they they wanted and instead impeached him. And that's one of their Arguments is that you didn't follow the proper procedure. You should have taken it, you know, for months and months and months, and gone through court. And so, yeah, if if nothing else, Donald Trump knows how to throw things into a courtroom and and slow everything down.
0: Brian, what about? the, the a lack of attention span that seems to be prevalent in this thing. I mean, uh, last Sunday when the New York Times broke the story with a little excerpt from uh, Bolton's book from the manuscript anyway, uh, there were shockwaves going around. And everybody said, well, this is a game-changer. Uh, th- that seems to be off everybody's radar right now. It, you know, it, it, three days later and there's so much else has gone on, so what? That seems to be the attitude.
4: Well, that's the way Donald Trump operates. You, it's a, It's chaos in a blender. His idea of, of governing is don't watch this and don't watch this and oh look smoke oh a squirrel you know it's, yeah. it's every 30 seconds there's something that's the, the hard part about covering this administration is you know it used to be I compared it to they would put take one gumball out of the machine and put it into play previous administrations and walk that thing through till its very end and you would follow that issue. This administration walks up to the gumball machine with a baseball bat and scatters everything everywhere and says, oh, look, go find. Um, that's how they deal with uh, good news, bad news, any news. And if you don't like what the president says, wait 30 seconds, he'll change his mind to you know another brand of chaos.
0: And, uh, and that becomes the new normal now. I mean, you know, it used to be a shock to think that somebody would lie about this. Going back to the Nixon impeachment, of course, or attempted impeachment, obviously, from years ago uh... but that that's the new normal. I mean that you expect that from this president and and that seems to be part of the defense, yeah, so what if you change this story? Dershowitz even said that, Yeah, I know what I said during the uh, the Clinton impeachment, but I've changed my mind. Well, I guess it depends on who's getting the paycheck
4: Well, these people have the 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 there's no limit to their hypocrisy, and it is new. I don't call it normal i It's abnormal, and hopefully at some point in time, cooler heads and wisdom will prevail. But right now in this administration. It, it, it's like a ferret on Benzedrine. It's just crazy.
0: Brian, what are you hearing about Bolton's book? I mean, we got a little snippet of it, of course, the other day, and then there's another one, I guess about midweek, that suggested that you know he does favors for uh, for dictators around the world. I think we already knew that anyway, but uh, is, 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 is it going to be this damning piece of evidence that everybody seems to think is going to happen?
4: Well, we don't know, do we? I mean, that's the assumption. <laughs> Everyone who has testified in this, Uh, um, impeachment has gone on record and has testified hasn't said much nice about the president and they have not been able to get anybody on the record to to say you know great things about the president so it it's it will be interesting to see if bolton can be put on the record if he will be called if there will be witnesses and what he has to say i think it's it's imperative to hear what the man says if he exonerates the president okay if he doesn't exonerate the president, okay, but he should be heard. You know, the the rule of law in this country has long been that, you know, uh, uh, in a trial, every man's evidence should be heard. But in this case, not so much.
0: Yeah, I mean, we are going to hear Bolton's side of the story eventually. What is it, March 17th, the books are going to be released?
4: I don't think you can keep it from being released, no matter how much Donald Trump would like it to be released or, or suppressed. I I think that prior restraint has been roundly uh criticized and and there is no prior restraint but yeah
0: who knows this
4: is the trump america the banana republic of donald trump 2020
0: Talk to me about the ramifications of this. If, if this goes through, I mean, he's, he's, he's obviously going to be exonerated by this the Senate. I mean, McConnell, I know, has the votes for that, and he knows it as well, whether or not they're going to hear witnesses. And it's probably inconsequential to the final outcome here. But what does this do to the United States, not just for Trump, but, I mean, for future presidents as well? Uh, the indication I'm getting here is that basically wow. it basically means that the Senate mm-hmm. and Congress, well, the Republicans anyway, are basically giving the executive branch, i.e. the White House, a blank check to do whatever they want, whenever they want, to whomever they want. And
4: that's frightening, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. I I think checks and balances have to be maintained, and if you're going to let this president get away with it, then the next one down the line goes, well, hell, you let Donald Trump get away with it? Why not me? And it's going to be a very hard argument to make against, especially if you have someone who's you know i mean you could see someone from the far left doing exactly what donald trump has done and with the bluster of his base behind him could do the same thing and that's frightening this is you know uh this country is in my lifetime has not been this divided but the scary part is not just the division but the lack of education and the lack of understanding of what it is that they're doing there's a guy in the house who said i, I wonder if i'm looking at the extinction of the human species. And I go, well, maybe the extinction of of the American government, but you know, hopefully not the extinction of the human species.
0: Well, what seems to scare a lot of people, and it scares me too as, a, as an observer, is uh, we know that there's always some tinkering come election time. You know, I mean, you know, uh, you know the House will do gerrymandering at, at certain districts to, to kind of swing the vote one way or another in their favor, and we get that, but this is blatant. I mean, this is right in front of everybody where Trump is actually petitioning a foreign government to go in, and investigate and, and, and take out one of his political rivals. I mean, you know, that's the step that you see in movies but you don't think it's actually happening but that's setting a precedent as you mentioned for future administrations
4: well and it gives you an idea of what Trump's going to do if he's unfettered
0: Yeah. well we saw that the day after uh, Bill Barr interpreted the uh, the Mueller report for us and said there was nothing to see here Uh, it was the very next day that he he made this phone call with Ukraine it emboldened him uh, when Barr made those statements and when the Senate finally says Mr. President you're off the hook uh, there's no telling what he's going to do then
4: well, I think we have a good indication of what he's going to do. He's going to do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, and however he wants to do it, and to, uh, to hell with anybody else. And since he has no uh, inner voice that tells him, ooh, bad move, he, he's, he can go way off the wall. And that's uh, as he, I, I maintain he already has, but I, he'll continue in such a fashion that will imperil our country and our allies and the world.
0: Brian, we were told that uh, with these impeachment hearings, there's no double jeopardy. In other words, whatever happens in the Senate, uh, he could still be impeached at some point in the future. Uh, but uh, there's there's no chance that they, they, they're going to go through this whole process again. I mean, if, if, if they say no witnesses, and, and that's that, and it's over, and Bolton's book comes out, and there's damning evidence in there, is there anything anybody can do about
4: it? Sure. The Democrats could impeach him again, and... If the Democrats manage to get a hold of the House and the Senate and he holds on to the presidency, that could be a very ugly, ugly time in this country that if he wins re-election and the Senate is wrestled away from the Republicans and the Democrats hold on to the House, you will see an impeachment and a conviction and a removal. And you're going to see people very angry from the far right who say that it's nothing but a you know uh, a political hit job and so that's it's not going to be however this goes down it's not going to be pretty
0: well we'll be watching this afternoon a very pivotal afternoon with uh, the stuff that's going on in washington always great to get your insight into this brian thanks so much for the time today sure anytime take care brian karen of course a uh, uh, political analyst on cnn who will be watching as uh, the world will be watching today to see just what happens at the senate